turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Peter adds, he tells us that we are always to be ready to explain to those who ask us what we believe about Jesus and the gospel. You, you should know how to answer that, what you believe, and why you have come to believe what you believe. You don't have to go to Bible school to know this. You don't have to go to seminary. You ought to know the gospel. You ought to know something of how to defend your faith by scripture. But that's not all. Notice that Peter says right at the end that we are to do this with gentleness and reverence. That's, that's the key. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as the Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That last part is just how Peter handled the mockers when he preached his very first sermon before a hostile crowd at Pentecost. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In our last session, Pastor Steve began to introduce a new series of lessons about the sermon Peter gave on Pentecost. It was a response to the reaction by those who witnessed this first expression of the Holy Spirit's power by the early believers. His audience contained a lot of people who, a few weeks earlier, had been clamoring for Christ's crucifixion. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2 now. Here's Pastor Steve with today's study. Now this morning, we want to begin to examine Peter's sermon, his first sermon. It is part of Luke's very logical and sequential unfolding of the events that took place on the day of Pentecost. I remind you, first Luke told us that in fulfillment of Christ's promise, the Holy Spirit did arrive on the day of Pentecost. As a result, about 120 believers, those who had been waiting in the city of Jerusalem for the Spirit, they were now indwelt, and they were empowered by him, and as a result, they started speaking in tongues. Next, Luke told us about the reaction to all of this by the people in the city of Jerusalem, those who initially heard the sounds of this violent rushing wind, and then they heard the 120 Galileans speaking in their own mother tongues. It was not ecstatic utterance. It was not gibberish. It was a language, the language of various people groups around the Roman Empire. While some in this crowd mocked this phenomenon by accusing the believers of being drunk, most were just plain perplexed. They were confused. They, were, they didn't know what was going on. And they sincerely wanted to know, what, what is this? What's happening? And that's why they said at the end of verse 12, what does this mean? Most of the crowd had that attitude. Some mocked. And Peter is about to tell them what this means. That's what his sermon is about. He gives them, as I said, not only his first sermon, 
But he gives the first sermon ever in the Christian era. This is the first sermon. And here's the flow. I'll give you the big picture. The flow and the main points of Peter's sermon. First, he refutes the accusation that he and the other believers are drunk. He tells them that's ridiculous. It's absurd. Then he answers the question of the crowd by explaining the meaning of the foreign languages that were spoken by these Galilean followers of Jesus. Then he brilliantly transitions into explaining about Jesus, his life, his death, resurrection, ascension. Finally, he closes with this powerful declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, and then he puts the pressure on them to respond to Christ by accusing them of crucifying him. So, That's the background. Let's begin now to look at Peter's sermon by seeing the first point that he makes. We're going to see how he dealt with this accusation made by the mockers as, first of all, he refutes their charge of drunkenness. Verses 14 and 15. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, it means the 11 other apostles, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. But these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now, Luke says that in response to the mockery made by some, that they were observing a bunch of intoxicated Galileans, Peter, as the recognized spokesman for all the apostles and the rest of the 120 Christians, he faces the crowd, raises his voice so as to be heard by all, and he addresses them. Now, we learned last week that when believers were filled with the Spirit at that point, they were supernaturally empowered. These believers were supernaturally empowered to speak in 15 different foreign languages. So the question is this, what language did Peter use? There are lots of languages all around there. Well, Luke doesn't say anything about the language Peter used. He doesn't say anything, but it's very likely that Peter spoke in Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. Why? Because as Jewish people, that's who he's speaking to, that was the language that all of them understood, regardless of, of where they lived. If you look again at verse 14, you'll see that Luke tells us that in speaking to the crowd, Peter calls them, and I quote, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. What's the difference? Well, it means that he's addressing both those who were permanent residents in the city of Jerusalem. Those are the men of Judea. Judea is a province. Jerusalem's the city in Judea. So permanent residents of Jerusalem and those who were temporarily residing in Jerusalem just there to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. Both of these groups would be very familiar with Aramaic, which was the normal language spoken by Jewish people when they conversed with each other. So speaking to them in their familiar Aramaic, the first thing Peter does is he dismisses this foolish notion, this error that that these people, including himself, are drunk. And he does it, folks, by appealing to common sense. Look at verse 15 again. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now Peter says, and probably pointing to the 11 apostles, that these men cannot be drunk. Why? Because it wouldn't make any sense. It's only the third hour of the day. Listen, the third hour of the day at that time was 9 a.m., 9 in the morning, since the Jewish people of that day considered that the morning began with sunrise, which would be approximately 6 
a.m. Therefore, the third hour of the day is about nine in the morning. So what Peter is telling them is that their accusation of drunkenness has to be dismissed based on something that's just generally understood by by everyone, that people don't normally get intoxicated at nine in the morning. I mean, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but 120 of them, and especially Jewish people on a holy feast day, such as Pentecost, he's telling them that's absurd. That's absurd. Now, that's his way of addressing this. But I want to, before we leave this opening statement of Peter's sermon, it's not terribly deep. He just says that's ridiculous. Everybody knows that people don't get drunk that early in the morning. But I want to point out to you something that is most important. I want you to see the godly example that Peter sets for us in how he answered the foolishness of these mockers slanderous accusation because while your zeal and activity for Christ may never be equated with drunkenness, you will face ridicule. You will face ridiculous accusations about your faith in Christ. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. You may be accused of rejecting science if you believe the Bible and a six-day literal creation as we learned at our recent Creator Conference. You may be accused of being a heretic, especially if you have left a former religion that bases salvation on good works. You have left that religion for the gospel of God's grace. You'll be accused of being a heretic. You may be accused of being intolerant of certain people because you don't accept their deviant sexual lifestyles as valid. How intolerant could you possibly be? You may be accused of being a religious bigot because you claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Listen, there are many things that you can and will be falsely accused of because of your faith in Jesus Christ and your commitment to the word of God. It is just inevitable. But how you respond to these accusations is most important because you represent Christ and as his representative, you are responsible to respond in a way that honors him so that you're a good testimony to those who attack you, rather than a poor testimony by reacting in in an ungodly, harsh, and vengeful way with just some angry, defensive outburst. In principle, you are to do what Peter did in answering those who accused him and the others of being drunk. You see, what Peter actually did is follow the principle that he would later write down in his first letter for all of us to follow. First Peter chapter 3 verse 15, he said this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, first of all, Peter exhorts us to make sure that Christ is reigning as Lord in our hearts. That's what he means when he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him aside. Set him aside to be your Lord. So make sure he's reigning in your hearts. Why is that so critical? Because when he is reigning, you are under his control. When he's not reigning, you're under your flesh's control. And our flesh is naturally inclined to lash out in sinful pride at anyone who attacks us. We may call it defending the faith, but we are defending ourselves. And it's wrong, and we get very, very sinful when we do that. Secondly, Peter adds, he tells us that we are always to be ready to explain to those who ask us 
what we believe about Jesus and the gospel. You, you should know how to answer that, what you believe, and why you have come to believe what you believe. You don't have to go to Bible school to know this. You don't have to go to seminary. You ought to know the gospel. You ought to know something of how to defend your faith by Scripture. But that's not all. Notice that Peter says right at the end that we are to do this with gentleness and reverence. That's, that's the key. See, sometimes those who ask us about our faith, they do so by attacking us and attacking our faith. But instead of reacting by striking back at them in anger, Peter says that we are to be gentle. We are to be respectful in the way we answer them. And folks, that's exactly what Peter has done with these mockers. Even though their accusation was was made in mockery, and it was foolish. It was foolish to the point of being absurd. Notice that Peter was kind, yet he was firm in telling them they're wrong. He didn't attack them. He didn't tell them that that was one of the stupidest things he's ever heard in life. He might have thought that, but he didn't say that to them. He simply and very calmly showed them their error by appealing to common sense that people just don't get drunk that early in the morning. So listen, follow Peter's example. Learn from from him that when you are attacked and slandered and ridiculed and laughed at and mocked for your faith, even those attacks that are personal and they wound you, still be respectful, be kind, but be firm in showing them their error by showing them the truth of the gospel. So now that Peter has told this crowd that what they have observed coming out of the mouths of these believers was simply not due to drunkenness, there has to be another explanation, the correct explanation, which he proceeds to give them as he continues his sermon and moves to what we would call the second point, which is this, that the activity that they have observed on the day of Pentecost indicates that the last days have arrived. The last days have arrived. Notice what he says in verses 16 through 18. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, with these words, Peter is directly answering the question that was raised by the the majority of the crowd who heard them speak in tongues. The question is, what does this mean? In other words, they want an explanation for why 120 Galilean disciples of Jesus, who they had all assumed were heretics and blasphemers, being followers of what they assumed was a false Messiah, why they were all speaking of the mighty deeds of God in their own mother tongues. And Peter's answer is very direct. He says, this is that, what was spoken of by the Old Testament prophet Joel. In other words, what you have witnessed today is what God predicted would happen close to eight centuries ago when he spoke through Joel the prophet. And then Peter proceeds to loosely quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And note this, this is important. The key to interpreting the prophecy of Joel and interpreting what Peter is now explaining is to understand what is meant in the very first words of verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says. This is key. So I would encourage you to write this down. 
the expression, the last days, that's an Old Testament phrase. And it refers to the time when Messiah comes. This is just a common theme spoken often by the prophets in the Old Testament. So the coming of Messiah inaugurates the last days. However, what the prophets did not explicitly state was that while there is one Messiah, he would come two times. He wouldn't come just once. He would come two times. First time he would come, as we sang, as the Lamb of God, dying for the sins of sinners on the cross. He would be an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Second time, he would come as the reigning king to establish his kingdom on earth as he judges unbelievers, but also establishes his kingdom for believers. And in between these two comings, there would be a long, at least, we know, 2,000-year interval. We call it the church age. That's the time we're living in right now. The Old Testament never spoke of the church. We call it the church age. It's a time now when God is saving many Gentiles some Jewish people, but mostly Gentiles, as he builds his body, the church. Now listen closely. Contrary to what some people think, the last days, those last days do not refer to the days immediately before Christ's second coming. We often think that. We hear last days, so it must be the last time he comes. Not so. Rather, they refer to the time period that began with Christ's first coming. It will end when he returns to set up his kingdom on earth. That is to say, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, the last days also began. And those days continue even now. So it is correct to say that we are presently in the last days, even though those last days have gone on for over 2,000 years. And, and this corresponds to exactly what other New Testament letters and Bible teachers say, and apostles and prophets, listen to 1 John 2.18. Children, John said, it is the last hour. Now, he used the term hour, but the same thought. It's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. John said, it's the last hour. That was written 2,000 years ago. 1 Peter 1.20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Last times, last days, synonymous. Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, the writer to the Hebrews says, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the last days, folks, they've been going on for over 2,000 years. And what Peter is saying is that what was happening on the day of Pentecost, what this crowd was observing, is exactly what the prophet Joel predicted would happen during the last days. And then Peter just proceeds to describe and explain and clarify what was happening before their, their very eyes by quoting the prophet Joel. He says in verse 17 and following, it shall be in the last days, God says, here's what's happening. I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, essentially, what Peter is saying is that just as Joel, the prophet, predicted 
These are the last days. They've begun. And therefore, God, just as he said he would do in the last days, what he's doing now is pouring forth the Holy Spirit on all mankind. That's what you're observing. You're observing exactly what what Joel said would happen. God is pouring forth his spirit on all of mankind. And by all of mankind, Peter doesn't mean every single person on the planet. He means all of God's people. All of God's people. He clarifies this by mentioning all kinds of God's people, irrespective, for example, of their gender. He, He says his spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters, meaning male and female. He says the spirit will be poured out irrespective of their age. He says young men and old men. And irrespective of their social status. He says even slaves. People of all social classes. This is basically the same thing that Jesus promised his disciples when he said that they would all be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Instead of a select few individuals having the Holy Spirit come upon them, which is exactly what happened in Old Testament times, Now, in these days, in these last days, in the church age, the Holy Spirit has been given to all of God's people. That's what this is about. So what Peter is explaining to this crowd is that what was happening before their very eyes is that the last days have arrived. And therefore, God has begun to do what he predicted he would do. He's pouring out his spirit upon his people. And that is why these 120 Galilean Jews are speaking languages they've never previously studied because they are actually prophesying in the sense that they are declaring God's word. Remember, they're speaking forth the mighty deeds of God. And what's more, he says, some will declare his word. They didn't do it at that point, but they will declare in these last days his word by visions and dreams, which God will give them. So let me explain. Let me explain. Before the canon of scripture was complete, God did communicate his revelation to certain individuals through the gift of tongues, which as we've seen is human languages, speaking in human languages, as well as visions and dreams. Certainly the apostle Paul speaks of visions that were were given to him. Peter had visions given to him. But listen, once the last book of the New Testament was written, those revelatory languages, those visions, those dreams, they stopped. And we know this because in the New Testament letter, the little letter of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, Jude states that we are to contend earnestly for what he calls the faith, which was, he says, once and for all, handed down to the saints. And what he means by this, when he says the faith, definite article there, not our personal faith, the faith, the body of New Testament truth, the New Testament revelation of God embodied in the scriptures as a unit. He says it was once and for all, meaning it happened once, it's not happening again. It was once and for all delivered, given to God's people. And now it's finished, it's complete. We are never to add to it. We are never to subtract from it. We have God's revelation to us. So today, although we are still given the Holy Spirit without measure, we don't receive or speak new revelation. We only declare what God has already revealed in his word. Nothing more, nothing less. So what Peter then is explaining to this crowd is that the last days have come. The days of Messiah have arrived, 
And the proof of this is that God has begun to pour out his spirit on all of his people, and not a few select ones. And that's the answer to their question back in verse 12. What does this mean? We live such a short time that it's hard to fully grasp the idea that the last days have lasted for over 2,000 years, and we don't know how much longer they will go on. It looks like Jesus could return any time, but it looked like that to Peter and the other apostles, as well as to their disciples. So we just need to be ready, even though no one knows what day it will happen. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. For service times or other information, call 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry, and we're grateful for the prayers and gifts that keep it on the air. If you'd like to participate financially, call Lakeside at 727-441-1714 or go to the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. It's a convenient and secure way to help support Verse by Verse. And don't forget about the message archive page where you can stream or download hundreds of previous broadcasts. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. When Jesus returns at the...